you're listening to the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Campbell. I want to support movements that can interrupt cycles of injustice and inequity and shift power towards vulnerable and marginalized communities. I've spent years working in and with nonprofits and philanthropies, and I know how important infrastructure is to outcomes. On this show, we'll talk about how to build capacity to transform the way you and your organization work. Hi, everyone. It's Katie, Buildup's Manager of Global Operations. This week on the Nonprofit Buildup, we are continuing with the recast of our very first episode of the Nonprofit Buildup. This week, you will hear the second part of Nick's conversation with Sherilyn Eiffel, president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. You can jump back to part one of the conversation to learn more about Sherilyn's expertise, major accomplishments, and the transformational work of the Legal Defense Fund. But with that, let's dive into the second part of Nick's conversation with Sherilyn Eiffel, where they discuss how funders can support nonprofit sustainability and more. Yeah, some foundations are already doing things like, you know, providing webinars and just support on various aspects of how we manage this moment, providing free social media training or communications training to organizations that really may not be sophisticated in that area. You know, one thing I haven't, I mean, a a couple of foundations have individually done this. I love the pledge that, you know, many of the foundations took, but I just think we should be freed up from reporting at this moment. It's extremely onerous particularly if you're not a first-time recipient and the foundation knows you, the time that we spend doing reports is time that we could be spending finding additional gifts and we're all financially pressed and looking to raise more money. And that means that we need to find new foundations or we need to find new areas of work. And I would say every report should be dinged until next spring and like, you know, and (laughs) give us another year, not because we don't have a lot to report, but just because the work of the report, you know, takes time away from some of the other stuff that we're doing. I think, you know, those foundations that have reached out and convened, you know, small groups of us to ask us the ch- just the challenges we're facing as leaders. I mean, it's something I tremendously appreciate. We are people. There are things we just, we cannot show our staff our own fears. We have to be reassuring. And so we actually need safe spaces where we can convene and talk about some of these issues. I would say providing a window into the things that you know about what the financial outlook looks like, providing, you know, experts who can address us as leaders or even address our staff about COVID or other aspects of this crisis, really providing, you know, support beyond the financial support, just recognizing that this, as I suggested, is a moment that none of us have ever experienced before and the expectation that leaders will just kind of walk into this with some magic ability to navigate all the aspects of it. It seems to me just false. So I would say that, especially for your, you know, your core donors to just be offering that kind of support is, is really important. And I think foundations are, their endowments are taking a hit too. So I understand that, but I think just deciding that you're going to sustain with the organizations is absolutely critical because all of us recognize we're not going to be making more than we made in the past, right? So, but we've got to be able to sustain. As I said, I just advise people to open up a whole nother front of work to address this crisis, but obviously to be efficient and marry it with your existing work, which is what we're trying to do. But we're not working less. We're working more. I'm definitely working more. Everyone Mm -hmm. is working more because the kind of work we do, you know, the courts have not closed. 
right? The Supreme Court is still deciding cases. We still have our virtual trial. We still have a brief due in the Harvard Affirmative Action case. We still filing cases. We're still doing all that stuff. And we still got to get, you know, food for these kids. And we, so not one bit of the work has stopped. And yet a whole nother layer of work has been placed on top of it. So we have to be able to hold our staff. You know, we have to be able to just maintain. And so I would really encourage foundations to bet on their grantees this year. You just have to do it because I do think this is a potentially catastrophic moment, not only in terms of just survival, but in terms of our democracy, because what has accompanied the pandemic are all of the threats that always accompany catastrophes like this, which is the power grab, you know, and the suffering of those who are most marginalized and the attempt to hold on to power, you know, by those who led us during this crisis. Like those are all things that always happen. So we are in a moment of tremendous, tremendous democratic peril. And to my mind, you know, I, I call a civil rights work, democracy work. That's what we do. And this is not the time to imagine for one second that we can skimp on the need to lean into not only protecting this democracy, but being like aggressive and affirmative in our work. And many of the things that are happening now we will need to think through now how to maintain. So people understand now that people have to be released from prison. Okay, well, we've been talking about that for years. So how do we post-pandemic sustain that narrative? We've been talking about the need to extend voting opportunities. Okay, now many people do get why there have to be be extensive mail-in ballots and more early voting. And okay, how do we carry that forward? So that becomes the new normal. There's a lot of conversation about the new normal in the context of social distancing and flying and taking cruises. But we need to make the expansion of some of these areas in terms of civil rights, the new normal also. And that's going to take organizing, advocacy, litigation, and empowering our communities to be able to speak and demand that they want that new normal. Well, you've provided really practical advice for both nonprofits and funders. And we even talked about some of the practices that you're recommending funders stop. So with all of that in mind, what do you wish we did less of as a sector and what should we do more of? Mm. Well, I think we're in so much peril that I honestly cannot think of anything that we need to be doing less of, to be honest. And I would have said this before the pandemic also. I have continued to believe that even before the pandemic, we're not enough for the moment. That's why we're in so much trouble right now. We just, you know, it's more, got to be more. What do we need to be doing more of? I think people are listening right now. And so we should really be paying attention to increasing the touch, the ability of us to touch and communicate with people in the people we represent in communities around the country. It's just vitally important right now that people feel that they are part of something. And the things that we normally do where we meet and we march and we congregate or people knock on doors, those are not things that can happen. People also need to see that people are fighting for them. So they need that communication needs to get to them because this can be a really despairing moment also. So we really need to be talking to people so that they can see, you know, what their own power is. And, you know, just, I think the ability to move quickly, everything's going so fast that if we could just increase everyone's ability to do rapid response, it would be awesome. Like we're all sitting here and the post office is not funded. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a catastrophe that, you know, 
just has to be dealt with. And so just new things arise all the time. And we have to, you know, I'm very concerned about Black businesses and what's going to be happening in our community with the stimulus and how badly it has done in being accessible to small Black business owners. And really, it's about mom and pop businesses, you know, barbershops that won't survive, beauty parlors that won't survive, nail salons that won't survive that are in our community. What's the plan? I've talked about this in the context with Black churches who are some of the biggest property owners in the African-American community. Let's leave aside the spiritual piece. I'm just talking about as property owners. When, you know, the emergency is regarded as over and the foreclosure crisis is over and the forbearance is lifted, those folks aren't going to have money. The churches are, the Black church relies on people to come in every Sunday and put something in the plate. And nobody's been coming in. And every church will tell you that online does not approximate that. So we're about to see unless something is done, a kind of catastrophic property loss in our community, which will increase gentrification. Think about some of these churches and the land that they sit on, where they're located. When I think about something like Mother Emanuel in downtown Charleston, if you've ever been there, where the Charleston Nine were killed, it's right downtown, huge church right there at the beginning of the big shopping street. No, not a Black community around it anymore, but I mean, that's prime property, you know? So I think we need a little bit more creativity around, you know, the exercise I do, which is I try to do it in increments of one year, three years, and five years. When I look back at this time, what am I going to be sorry we didn't do? And one of those pieces, I think, is to imagine what strengths will still exist, what anchors will still exist in the Black community, and have we protected them? Well, I know that I really like when you're talking about being creative and how can organizations show up in that way, particularly as they think about their own planning and their own strategies. But also know that the focus of many nonprofits is often on that programmatic strategy and on the direct asks or the fundraising pieces. And I wanted to talk about infrastructure and raise a question with you, which is, is LDF thinking about building infrastructure during this time? And if it is, how is it thinking about building that infrastructure? And Do you mean fundraising infrastructure? or and I mean your organizational infrastructure, the organizational foundation that you have to do that programmatic work, to be programmatically creative, thinking about how you're setting up your boards, your operations, your governance structures. And if you're thinking about that now, how does that thinking shift for infrastructure after the pandemic? I like to say that, you know, we have the unique experience of kind of being a little bit ahead of the curve because we were talking about these very issues and really beginning to make shifts, make shifts in our board. We had planned to open a Southern office, which, you know, obviously very few people are opening bricks and mortar at this point, but we, it may be a remote office, but we understood the need to be closer, physically closer to engage with our communities, to be able to speak more directly to them. So we already understood that. We had increased our support for our internal think tank, the Thurgood Marshall Institute, so that we could do more of our own research and really disseminate direct research to our community. We just had done a big comms buildup so that we could increase our comms capacity. So in some ways, we had kind of not knowing that the pandemic was coming, but feeling that for all the reasons I told you before, we're in this critical democratic moment. But we have been talking about just who we are and how we show up in the space. We've been thinking about our own branding because that really is important to grabbing the attention of the people that we represent. And just building collaborations has been really, really critical to our work. 
But I do think that, you know, what I was describing about like black businesses, that that's kind of why we have our Thurgood Marshall Institute is because like we want to spend some time learning. And that's what the Institute is designed to do is to help us learn. And one of the things I think is critical in this moment is figuring out what we need to learn to be able to come up with solutions that actually work. And that means that we need to be able to convene people to say, you know, here's what we don't know and here's what we need to learn in order to make this work. So I'd like to see more of that happening. The truth is this is exhausting. You know, we're all in this box all day. And so we also have to be a little bit kind to ourselves, you know, in terms of how difficult this is. I actually find that where I'm shifting to right now is some solitary time to study and to read and to write in my, the four waking hours that I have that I'm not working because I think it's important to try to diagnose this moment and understand what it is we're in. And I think too many of us, we're doing so much that we can't see it. And, you know, I'm a big legal historian. And so this all happens within an ecosystem and trying to understand the ecosystem. I'm very interested in what my profession is doing. Like that's the kind of creative thing that we're not talking about in the civil rights space, but I'm talking about it. What has happened to the legal profession and the need to activate the profession in a way that resets some of what I think has been eroded over the past few months. And that really is critical to us and infrastructure that we need to be able to do civil rights legal work. So I think being able to kind of have a little drawback time to see the whole instead of just see the pieces that we're working on or the pieces that are in our face or the pieces that Trump has served up for the day is one of the biggest challenges of this moment. But the earth is shifting beneath the ecosystem of civil rights in this country. And we need to be able to see that shift to figure out how to take advantage of it. So I do think that it's vital that we spend some time doing the intellectual work of change. Cheryl, in this conversation has been so powerful. And I want to ask you a question to help us continue to build knowledge through books and people we should learn from or about to close us out. So what book do you think we should read next or what artist do you think we should be paying attention to? Well, I'll just tell you, I'm on my own curriculum right now. And so it's not one book, but after the 2016 election, like literally a week after, (laughs) I was on a panel with the great civil rights historian, Taylor Branch, and with Isabel Wilkerson, the author of The Warmth of Other Sons. And Isabel, who's become a friend, you know, suggested at that event, it was held at University of Maryland, she suggested that we were entering the second Nadir or Nadir. The Nadir was the period from 1880 to 1920 or so, described as the Nadir by the historian Rayford Logan as kind of the worst period for Black people after slavery. And, you know, I resisted her a little bit, but I kind of knew she was right. (laughs) So, anyway, you know, since the first of the year, I've been really asking the question, and what did they do in the Nadir? Because there's never a time where we did nothing. And in fact, much of what happened in the Nadir was the foundation upon which powerful shifts in civil rights ended up happening in this country, you know? And I'm trying to write about this now. So I'm reading, the, I'll get you my Nadir reading. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess, you know, the first one is, is this one is Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois. That's like the most important. That's kind of the Bible. But two other books that are really, I find really illuminating also. One is Rayford Logan, the one who created the term, the Nadir, The Betrayal of the Negro, from Rutherford B. Hayes to Woodrow Wilson. 
and then Dixon Bruce's Black American Writing from the Nadir, The Evolution of a Literary Tradition, 1877 to 1915. I'm very interested in how writers wrote in that period because I'm always interested in what artists do during these dark periods because I think these are always periods of very important high art. So for me, it's a bit of studying and a bit of learning. And it turns out, at least from my you know, sneak peek of the piece I'm writing, is about the institutions that were created in the Nadir, the NAACP, the Deltas, you know, all of these institutions that we tend to, that then had the platform to help advance the civil rights movement actually were created in this period, in this period when Black people were really just at the very edge and at the very bottom. So the question for us is, it may not be that that is what we must do, but the question is, what must we do? There is building that has to happen in this period. So that's what I'm working on. Well, I've definitely added some books now to my book list. So thank you, my reading list. So thanks so much for sharing that. And I look forward to reading your piece when it comes out. Mm -hmm. And you've just shared some incredible takeaways and gems throughout this conversation that I think leaders can implement into their own organizations to help them build bravely. So I want to thank you again for your insights and your time today, Sherilyn. Thank you so much. This was great. I really enjoyed talking to you. And please let me know whatever you do with it or wherever it appears. Make sure we have a link or something so that we can take a look at it. Yes, definitely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.